HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Union Beer. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, and welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here on Pub Day for Food Gift Love, this amazing book of edible gifts by Maggie Batista, um, better known as Eat Boutique. Um, this community that you've cultivated, both online and in person, uh, of you know craft makers and artisan you know food items. Uh, it's just it's just kind of an amazing. It's not a niche anymore because it's it's so much bigger than that. It's funny. It's funny how it sort of came to life over, uh, I guess, eight years now. Um, but it's a really interesting community of food makers and chefs, but also food fans, aficionados. And uh, we talk online, but we also meet in real life at the events we put on. So it's really sort of a great camaraderie that we've built over the last several years. That that passion or that passion for interaction with, with, you know, a humanistic side to it came from your mother, um, who was, who was a very compassionate person and, you know, led these food drives and community pantries. Very funny and very strange. And well, she did a wonderful thing, but I sort of became the opposite of that. I went into technology (laughs) and I focused on being behind a computer for 15 years, um, building online communities. But yeah, my mother, uh, sort of was in my head the whole time I was writing the book and reminded me of all the stuff that she did and we did as kids. She would drag me to everybody's house when she dropped off all the food. So I guess that stuff sort of um, sticks with you yeah. in some strange way. I mean, was there a specific packaging or was it just a whole bunch of cans in the sack? And It really was food drive style. So she really um, did have lists of people in the community that she and a bunch of other women collected food for. 
And every week, there are certain days of the week, we'd go, and she always took myself or my sister along. Um, and it was sort of different than what I'd experienced or what I thought it would be. She actually like went inside people's homes, sat down with them, gave them the food. If they were making coffee, she was going to take coffee. Uh, she wasn't sort of like rushing to drop and leave. Um, and as a kid, it was sort of strange to me. I thought we should leave folks alone. You know, um, you know, how can we be imposing on people in this manner? But uh, it rung true. And uh, she sort of um, uh, unknowingly just built this thing inside me that wanted to do it, wanted to do that too, unknowingly, because I went immediately into technology <laughs> when yeah. I graduated and started building online communities. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, again, that important word, community, and it, it's that conversation that happens around everything that's sold on Eat Boutique, you know, mm-hmm. also the word curated, because that's what these boxes that you used to sell really are. Um, but they have such stories behind them. And was it because your love of food or your love of food people, uh, food fans, that you wanted to start Eat Boutique? I think it was the people. I mean, I love food, but uh, I remember going into places and just having a nice dinner someplace and a chef coming out and the kindness of their heart giving me a little jar of salt they, they, they infused with spices or herbs. And I think for me, the reason I started curating these gifts is because I thought these people needed to be shared with the world in some way. Uh, so it really, it was about the people and then the food. Of course, it's always about the food, um, the delicious, unctuous, beautiful food um, and how they're packaged and how we deliver it. But it, you know, the core of it is all these great, makers and artists and visionaries who uh, do things maybe a little bit differently. Well, let's talk about New England because uh, it seems like you called a great community of, of, you know, artisans there from, you know, Lark Fine Foods and their cookies. Um, Dee Dee Davis, her Mm -hmm. rose sugar from Mm -hmm. Salt Traders and Ipswich Mass. Uh, How did you initially meet these people, interact with these people and kind of conspire to disseminate uh, it was very strange. I started a blog. I started a blog called E-Boutique simply because I wanted to write about food and write my way into a life in food, and I didn't know what that meant exactly. Uh, but once I had put up a few posts and put up a few pictures, I actually reached out to Marianne at Lark. So Marianne and I have known each other since she started her cookie business, oh gosh, seven years ago. I was one of the first people that she sold to. Um, and I reached out to her and said, hey, um, you know, I love food, you love food, we're 10 minutes away from each other, can we get to know each other? And uh, I think as a small business owner, you sometimes feel so alone when you're doing, you know, when you're getting off the ground. <laughs> so there's being able to kind of talk to someone who had an interest in what you were doing. We got together, we met, we talked. Um, I, I put her in one of our first gift collections that yeah. we ever did. It's so wonderfully optimistic that you say that we talked and I would have said, and we commiserated. <laughs> well, you know, yes, it's hard. <laughs> way, way to put it in that positive light. <laughs> it definitely but is hard. Like you, like you said, it is kind of a, an autonomous thing when you're, you're starting a small business. Um, you just feel so lost in, in, in the universe of things that are going on. And you think that there's some magic going on somewhere else, like people know everything somewhere and you just don't know the magic or don't know the rule book, right? But really, like, we're all learning it as we go along. And I think when you start to get together and commiserate or chit-chat <laughs> or have a glass of wine, you learn that kind of we're all in this together. 
big picture farms, uh, the goat milk yes. caramels. I think the first time I ever saw them, because my mother's lactose intolerant, was through Eat Boutique. I'm like, oh, that's a you know, great item. And then I started browsing through Eat Boutique. And I'm like, yeah, I like that too. I'm going to check that off. I've never heard of that. And you become so invested. And it's one of those wonderful wormholes that you find. And, you know, <laughs> you. yeah, and, but it's that investment of time that you've put in to build these relationships too. Um, who have you gone out, like sought after and, and really brought in? Gosh, I'll say everybody's been really wonderful to work with. Uh, Big Picture Farm was one of them that we sort of, I, I forget how I tasted their stuff, but I just did. And, and I invited them to a market and they, they came and we had such a great time. I'm trying to think of some other makers that um, I worked with and sort of we grew together. Well, Lark, Dee Dee Davis, um, Ben at Jacobson's, mm -hmm. which is out on the West Coast, um, which we all know that amazing sea salt. Um, I just saw Jamie Curl at Quinn out in Portland, Oregon. I just got back from Portland. And we have been friendly online for years. Um, and I've watched her grow and watched her business change. And we just finally met for the first time face-to-face, -face, like last week. So um, it's really all different sorts of folks that I've, that I've worked with across the spectrum, sweet and savory and drinks. Drinks have actually been some of our most popular products. So I actually started with Kari Morris at Morris Kitchen. I was one of her first resellers. Oh gosh, Kari, if that was five years ago or something. Um, and really just cultivated that friendship. Uh, and I think we finally did meet face to face last year. But everything online, stories online, photos online. So yeah. yeah. The word resale. Um, I don't know if it has a kind of connotation to it, yeah. which good or bad, but, you know, it seemed to not take out the charm of something, but seemed to be almost this larder, this place where, you know, there was stock, but there wasn't uh, that person behind it, that initial artisan. But I think what you've invigorated in that resale space is, is you're such a champion of these people as well. I'm passionate about these folks. <laughs> that may sound crazy, um, but... Uh, you know, I really focus on bringing together a collection of things that I love. And um, we, you know, we go through a process of culling the folks we want to work with each year. And I think this year we've launched 20, 25, 30 different collections. And we work with those those makers directly and, uh, you know, figure out what what's the best collection, what's what's sort of emblematic of their brand and what the story that they want to tell. So it's always been that way. I, I never sort of set out to say, I want to develop this gigantic website with 2 million products on it and sell, sell, sell. And, you know, that's, I, I could go work for someone else and do that sort yeah. of stuff. You know, I thought it was more important um, to get to know folks and really sort of bring um, food fans and food makers together. And, you know, I want to talk a little bit more about that vetting process. Because yeah. I, I know you had the, the terrible job of being in Paris and having <laughs> to eat at all these bakeries and baguettes Sox. and croissants. But <laughs> How do you figure out what you like and what you think other people will like best? Uh, 
It is uh, an arduous process. Uh, we do taste every week. So we get samples and samples of food gifts um, every single week. And we bring our tasting committee together. And we taste for different things. Certainly, first and foremost, we look at packaging. And we look if the vision is clear, if the ingredients are forthright. Um, we try to understand how people, what ingredients people use versus others, um, why they chose this over that, especially with candy um, and some of the other things. Um, um, that, uh, uh, you know, um, people want to know more about. Um, and then we taste and we take rigorous tasting notes. So it's sort of, it feels a little bit like tasting wine or tasting coffee. I've done all those sort of cupping sessions and tasting sessions, um, taking notes, referring back to things, um, trying to compare different chocolates at a time. I think I've tasted maybe 30 or 40 different kinds of marshmallows for texture, consistency, flavor, ingredients, packaging. Um, but we, we literally go through that process. We sort of score all of our thoughts uh, and we file it away for either the immediate season or for the future. Yeah. Something else. I mean, talking about those collections you mentioned mm -hmm. before, what are this season's collections? So this year we have about 20, 25 different collections up online um, and they sort of are across the spectrum from some of our favorite jams. So we uh, work with Blue Chair Fruit, um, and we have a nice collection up of some of our favorite flavors. Uh, Rare Bird Preserves, uh, we, we love um, Elizabeth, and uh, she put a, get together a great collection of both jams, but also curds, because passion fruit curd tends to be our most popular product. Um, come to an event, and every the passion fruit curd is the first thing to disappear. Uh, we work with certainly chocolate makers. Um, so we have a farmhouse truffles collection up. And um, we also have been working with some other sorts of makers. So um, Kate Bakes down in D.C., we put together uh, a vegan bar collection because I've been tasting lots and lots of vegan um, protein bars, granola bars of different kinds, because I think we all really want um, we, we want to give the sweet stuff, but there's just this sort of flood of wanting to give things that are wholesome and nourishing, too, um, and healthful, full of health. So uh, we have a great collection. One of our most popular collections is her bar collection of vegan bars. Um, so it, it is a little bit across the spectrum yeah. of gifts. I'm, I'm, I'm hopefully not going to make you cry, but what was it, 2013, yeah. when you met Alice Waters accepting the AICP award, and you felt like it was a real business. Um, having this book out today, does it feel even more than that now? I, I think it feels more, yeah, yeah, I don't know how to explain it. Um, I'm an internet girl. You know, I grew up on the Internet. I write a few words and chat with people or write a blog post and put it up in 30 seconds. So to have worked two and a half years on a book and then to finally have it out there and then to get feedback today. Yeah, this feels real. Like this feels more real than most things. I can't explain it. Like I and, you know, my friends have been reaching out today, cookbook authors. Um, they've been reaching out all day just saying, you know, take it in. Yes, today is the day it feels real. And I know that's strange, but um, it may feel different tomorrow. <laughs> I don't know. But today, it's really, it's really fun and exciting to get it out there. Well, a huge congrats. And we're going to come back Thanks. and talk about you, because you make stuff too. <laughs> I do. <laughs> You've been listening to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back.
1996, El Knife and Son acquired Union Beer Distributors, which was originally located on Union Avenue in Brooklyn, but has since expanded to its present location alongside the English Kills Canal in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Union Beer has grown dramatically in the last decade as the primary distributor of Anheuser-Busch products for Kings County, Brooklyn, through the hiring and development of the best people in the industry. In 2003, Union Beer acquired a powerful catalog of specialty brands, which immediately positioned them as the craft beer supplier to accounts in Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, and Staten Island. Union perpetually tweaks their portfolio to maintain the highest level of stylistic breadth with the most coveted brands available. Through the highest possible level of service, outstanding salesmanship of the ultimate lineup of brands, and a paramount focus on education on all levels, Union Beer has solidified its position as the only source for the best selection of beers in the 14 counties of southeastern New York. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com. Hey, and welcome back to the Food Scene on Heritage, RadioNetwork.org. Your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here again today with Maggie Batista of Eat Boutique. And the, not just newly, but like just hot off the presses, <laughs> release Food Gift Love, which is a wonderful book that, that's taken your background at Eat Boutique, uh, you know, and it, it's taken it past other people's packaging. And it's not repackaging, it, it's rethought, it, it's homemade, it, it's deeply passionate and real. It is. It is. You know, I have um, some interesting people in my community at E-Boutique, and some people want to shop, and I just love that. They should go off and shop. But there's a lot of folks who just want to make food gifts. And so um, I call together a lot of recipes. I think there's about 105 in the book from across the spectrum of categories, from things that I've been making for years, uh, things that I've sort of honed and perfected. Uh, and um, I also had a big group of recipe testers who helped me through the process. That was actually a whole new community of folks, 80 recipe testers across the U.S., Canada, and Europe, who helped me, um, you know, who tasted the recipes, who gave me critical feedback, constructive support. They were awesome. So they are my recipes. Yeah. Yes, I'm psyched. Well, I mean, having eBooty too, you must have seen, like you said, the passion fruit card flies at events. What genres of things people were most interested in? And it's, uh, you know, it's almost always baked items. So yeah. there's no question that things that are sweet and delicious just fly. So that's cookies and cakes and pies and curds. And I have recipes for my versions of those throughout the cookbook. Uh, but cocktails fly, too. Uh, and so do things that are more um, shelf-stable. We know that jams and marmalades and pickles do. But what about salts and herbs and vinegars and things that you can keep in your pantry and just sort of dose out whenever the occasion arises? So the book is across the spectrum. I also include some potluck gifts in there because I feel like people always say to me, I'm not crafty. I don't know what a food gift is. <laughs> and I say to them, have you been to a potluck? Did you bring a dish? There you go. You're, you're a food gifter. You're a food gifter. So I, I, I included... Lots of big tray dishes as well. Um, there's a kitchen sink salad in there, a big soup, an amaretto tiramisu that's more amaretto than tiramisu. But, you know, big trays of things that you could um, bring to parties. Yeah. Well, actually, one of my favorite is just simply the, the cheese tray. Um, and that cheese tray itself, uh, I think there's, there's a recipe in the Midwest called like a walking 
taco where you just take a bag of Frito Lay's and put some chili in it. Yes. And okay. it's it's like the walking cheese tray. It totally is. And it's so funny that you mentioned the cheese tray because I just came back from uh, an event and I met um, um, Molly Ye, who is amazing. And she sent me an email this morning and said the first thing I did for our big farm harvest party was literally make a tra- traveling cheese tray and brought it out into the middle of the field. So I'm like, what? <laughs> but it's so easy. It's just some cheese and some things from your larder uh, in a bag. And then you open the bag up and set it all out on the bag. And, you know, it pretty consistently looks gorgeous. Yeah. Looks, and know. it's wonderfully labeled, too. You know, sure. often you think you have to bring this big piece of slate or wood and it has to be this very kind of heavy and not to say that this isn't elegant but presented in a specific way but you know the the efficiency too i'm a a utilitarian so am i (laughs) so i want it all to go in the right place be purposeful and then um, be able to use it another way so so in that bag i actually say grab a sheet of newspaper grab a sheet of parchment paper lay it all out maybe use some tape to actually label everything so people know what it is. Um, but it's pretty easy and effortless. And I think there's a lot of recipes in that book, in, in my book, in that book, in my book. book. <laughs> oh, yeah, it is my book. It's my book. Yeah. In my book that, that are like that, that are sort of easy things you can do on the go. Yeah, I mean, aside from the food, the, the biggest part about this book is being able to gift wrap or, you know, package these things. Um, how important is packaging for you from other people's perspective, uh, other people's brands, and you know what do you need to actually make edible gifts uh, sendable? So there's like two answers to that. For the stuff I sell in my shop, packaging is really important. We are spending money on things that um, we we love, that taste better, that may use better techniques or better ingredients. We want that stuff to look beautiful when we gift it. Um, in in the book, I actually uh, wanted to write a cookbook that included the gift wrap because people seem to struggle when they think about food gifts. They like, it stops them. They're like, I can make the jam, but like, what do I do to gift it to somebody? And I'm like, it's so easy. Let's just make a label together. Let's just make a label and some some pe- some tape or some twine. So it was really important for me to convey that. And I conveyed that by using a lot of um, simple, easily accessible items like, like the New York Times, like newspapers, like food sections of the New York Times, which is how I started at least my gift wrap larder. It starts differently for other folks. Um, but But I actually started collecting the food sections of the New York Times and then twine from the butcher or extra paper, extra tape. Um, and I started wrapping gifts when um, with, with just those simple items. So sustainable. I've underlined three times, your trash is treasure. It really is. <laughs> it really is. You don't understand how I like look through my pantry and I look through my cabinet and all my closets before I go out and go shopping and buy a gift because there's so much stuff, you know, hidden away in your shelves or your drawer that you can turn into a gift uh, quite easily. Well, I mean, you, you brought me some wonderful gifts, a cranberry vinegar, a balsamic blackberry glaze, and I know I will use these wholeheartedly, yeah. but I'm also like, yes, more bottles. Because <laughs> in my head, I'm like, I'm going to put something else in those afterwards. And you see how, and I'm like... Oof you know, sheltering my mouth from the microphone, but you can still hear uh, these molasses cookies. Because if... <laughs> they better I, make those home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I could have not mentioned them and my wife would have been like, oh, yeah, yeah. So you just got that vinegar in that glaze. That's cool. But sure. And, and these, I'm not even going to open them now because I know I will be ravenous for those. But you're right. The bottles I loved about 
how you could sort of take those bottles once you're done using them, clean them all out and re-gift them. And there's a lot of those things in the book. So for me, when I wrap something with ribbon or twine, I actually wrap it with like an extra half a foot of ribbon or twine, just cut six or seven or eight inches so that people can take it apart and actually reuse it and re-gift it. It makes so much sense to me. Uh, and when someone gives something to me, I sort of put it in my drawer or my shelving unit where um, I have piles and piles of ribbon now that have been gifted to me. Yeah. Over well, the I mean, let's talk about these vessels, too, because I think um, one of the most inspired gifts are these infused salts, because there's a story about Venice behind it. First, tell me about Venice. Venice was a revelation. So I, um, you know, um, part of my family is from Italy, but from down south. And um, I had been sort of holding off for years because of either money or jobs or whatever it is going to Italy. Uh, and about five years ago, I went to Italy with a friend of mine. He is, um, he at the time was a chef there in Pavia, a little town outside of Milan. And he took me to Venice and I had just landed that day and we got on the train and went to, to Venice. So you can imagine that I was like groggy and bleary eyed and jet lag and I had no idea what was going on. But he sort of promptly just took my hand, took me off the train, got me on one of those boats um, and the water taxis and we were dropped off in one of the markets. And he, he just said, sit down. That was it. He just said, sit down. And all I could see was this produce all around me. And he ordered two beautiful salads. They had this beautiful sort of combination of fennel, uh, citrus. There were briny, salty olives on it, a little olive oil. And that moment, even though I was bleary and jet lag, I remembered it so much that I wanted to make it into something that I could give to people when I get back without spending a fortune. So I turned it into a sea salt the moment I got back, I whipped up into a sea salt and gave souvenirs to folks. Um, so I didn't have to necessarily think about spending money there because I was so crazy. Or I'm transporting it back at the same time. Exactly. Too. Transporting it back. So I waited till I got home. I made them when I got home and my family all got those as, as gifts. So, um, yeah, that's one of my favorite little, little tidbits in the book. You know, you try to write a book that's very helpful and certainly direct, but you wanted to share some of the stories behind some of the gifts too. See, what I really wanted you to share are those graham cracker toffee things. Oh my gosh, they're so good. I mean, not to say that I'm upset about these molasses cookies <laughs> because they are my favorite one, but I saw those things and you're like, you know, every family has them. They train. I'm like, no, not my family. I have no idea what Whoa, you're talking about. Whoa, you've got to be yeah. talking to your family because yeah. every family has them. Uh, and the friend that gave me that and then gave me the recipe, that same day she gave them both to me, she totally changed my gifting because every cookie tray has them now at the holidays or even just a box of those on their own. Uh, they're not really, um, they're not toffee because they're not necessarily made in the authentic way toffee's made, but, but with the crackers and the butter and the sugar, they're just with a little chocolate on top. They're kind of, they're heavenly. So everybody wants them. I have to keep making those for yeah. people. See, I think you'd have marshmallow palate fatigue after all <laughs> that you've tasted. But these jam swirled marshmallows in your book seem seem to be, you know, pretty epic. Yeah, they're really pretty and they're really delicious. And uh, for me, what I was, when I taste marshmallows, sometimes what's missing for me is um, a little pop of flavor, like a brightness. You know, it's really mallow like marshmallow and soft and spongy and sweet and delicious but 
I wanted a bright zing through it, so um, I use a little bit of jam or reduced jam um, to zing through the marshmallows right, right when they're done. And then they firm up, and you have these little bits of jam through them. And it was actually one of the more popular recipes with the recipe testers because many of them, especially the more um, accomplished ones, may know how to make certain types of marshmallows, but they've never done that before. So that was fun. That was fun. I'm kind of a hothead, as you can tell from my, my demeanor right now. But by that, I mean candied jalapenos. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I love them. I, 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 uh, there's a story there, too, because I remember watching my mother and her friends and all my Latin family just eat jalapenos by the handful, like not even thinking. I could never do that as a kid. And now um, I make the candied kind um, and I put them in sort of smoky or more savory dishes or I just throw them into tortillas. Now, I didn't understand it as a kid, but as an adult, you know, your palate, you know, your palate, your taste change and I love them. They're so good. Were you allowed to have rompopo as a child? I don't think so. I'm not quite sure. So tell me about this. This is like Aladdin eggnog. And this recipe was derivative of some old vintage cookbook from Honduras. It was, yeah. It was actually an old cookbook written by the wives of the lawyers of Tegucigalpa in Honduras. And that big tomb was given to my mother and many women when they got married. So um, my mother started making rompopo, and it's sort of a thing at the holidays now. Um, we can't have a party without having rompopo between October and January. And I remember when I first did the first draft of the cookbook, it wasn't in there. And I showed it to a couple of family members, and they were shocked and they were mad at me. They were actually mad at me that I didn't put it in there. And I thought, no, no, no. I don't know if people will understand this. So I threw it through the recipe testing cycle, and I asked a bunch of recipe testers to to taste it, and it was a hit. So we had to add it back in. My mother still makes it this day, but she makes her own batch separate from the rest of us because she adds um, a little extra rum <laughs> into hers. So none of us can really, uh, it's a little much. for We like yeah. the, the version that's in my cookbook is the one most of us drink. Um, my mother adds a little bit extra. Yeah, I think I'm going to actually asterisk both those jalapenos <laughs> and the rompopo and say, you know, be like Maggie's mother. <laughs> a little bit extra for, for me. I but love that. Congrats again. I mean, this Thank book you. is fantastic, but even better is, you know, you, you have this food store, um, with stories that's so transportive and your willingness to, you know, share other people's wares um, and now your own is it, just so infectious. So I want to help other people, you know, take this book and run with it in the way that you have with other people's products. Thank you. That's yeah, very that's sweet. Thank you. Run out, buy food, gift, love. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3 Thank you to Union Beer Distributors for sponsoring the band Cookies for the music, as always. And next up, a little clip from Greenhorn Radio. Cheers. Easy grass. They're very good at eating grass. And um, they're quite strong poultry. They don't really have the same problems that chickens or, or other kind of weaker species have. They can be outside in a hurricane and be totally fine. 
you know, you might lose a few and they might get blown down the river, but they're not going to get chilled and they're not going to uh, have any trouble with kind of small varmint. Young farmers Wesley Bascom and David Hart recently started grazing geese in Vermont. They talk about all these interesting birds in episode 163 of Greenhorns Radio. Um, well, I personally find them to be endlessly fascinating. Um, they are not the, you know, vile, mean creatures of, of the myth. They are really curious, inquisitive, um, very bright birds that just, they're really fascinating. They do all sorts of things, and, it, and I think it takes a close inspection of them um, to really appreciate this. They are noisy, that's true, but um, they also, they talk to each other. It's not just endless noise. It's, it's an actual conversation that's occurring, and they... Um, And I find that somewhat amusing, honestly. Hear more voices of young farmers like Wesley and David on Greenhorns Radio, Tuesdays at 4 p.m., and listen to past episodes on Heritage Radio Network and iTunes. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.